This is our second week in a sermon series called Explore God. What we're doing is we're asking seven big questions about faith and about Christianity. So last week we asked the question, does life have a purpose? And this week we're asking the question, is there a God? But already, Houston, we have a problem. We have two problems, actually. And the first problem is that the Bible never explicitly addresses atheism. The very first line of the Bible simply assumes that God exists. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. No backstory, no explanation, no defense, just a big, bold assumption God exists. And even in the Psalms, for example, when King David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, he's not talking about atheists. He's actually talking about people like us, maybe, who believe in God, but who refuse to obey him. One more example. If you have a Bible, turn with me to our New Testament reading, Acts chapter 17. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, right after the Gospel of John. So in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is spreading the news about Jesus in Athens, this great, big, pluralistic, and sophisticated city of the ancient world, the massive exporter of all the hottest ideas in culture. New York would probably be the modern-day equivalent. And yet, there's a pretty big difference between the two, isn't there? Because New York is what we might call a godless place. In the sense, not that the Yankees are there, (laughs) but that money and success and career and status are for the most part front and center with God on the periphery at best. But Athens, we see in verse 16, is full of idols. It's a deeply and overtly religious place. And Paul says so himself in verse 22. Men of Athens, he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Can you imagine Paul saying that today in New York? (laughs) Athens was a very different place. It was steeped in organized religion. And Paul's unique challenge in his day was to persuade these people to believe in this unknown God without adding him to their existing pantheon. So this was the socio-religious context of the ancient world. Atheism was never the default. Polytheism, the belief in lots and lots and lots of gods, was. And so the overarching question in people's minds was not, is there a God? But actually, uh, which God? Which gods? Which God is the most powerful? Which gods will be most valuable for me, will protect me the most, will provide for me the most, will, will allow me to be most secure? So while our question is a good one, 
it's also a relatively new one. And frankly, it's one that the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about. So that's the first problem. But there's also a second problem. And that is that more and more people who don't believe in God are asking this question less and less. More and more people who don't believe in God are asking this question, our question for this morning, less and less. Charles Taylor is a Catholic philosopher from Canada. He's written this immensely important book, uh, this narrative of modern Western culture called A Secular Age. And his main point is that the Western world has changed. People are no longer as bothered by the God question. In fact, many of them are not even asking it. They're over it. They've moved on. So there is no God. There is no afterlife. There is no God-given meaning or significance or purpose to life. Fine. Great. What's for dinner? And that's the real zinger, isn't it? It's that for the most part, they don't feel like anything's missing. They aren't aware of any God-shaped hole in their hearts that needs to be filled. And they don't have any concern, it seems, that the secular lives they've constructed are missing a second floor. They're cool with the ranch. So this is the current situation. This is the cultural landscape of our Western world. We're not in Kansas anymore. We are living in what Charles Taylor calls a secular age. We've shifted from a society where belief in God was largely unchallenged and unproblematic to one in which it's simply one option among many others and often not the easiest one to embrace. And this thing, this secularism, it touches everyone. No one is safe because it not only makes unbelief possible, but it also changes belief itself. It impinges itself upon Christianity and upon other religious communities as well. So Christians no longer have the luxury of believing in God instead of doubting. No, now we all believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. Yes, we believe. But we believe while constantly being plagued by the possibility, the threat that maybe, just maybe, we could be wrong. Now, when we look at people's disillusionment with God in our culture, we find that often the shift towards secularism comes with a kind of reverse Damascus Road experience. We might call it a deconversion story. Here's an example of one from a blog post titled, uh, One night I prayed to know the truth, the next morning I discovered I was an atheist. So this gentleman writes, In the years after leaving the military, I went back to college. Not as a serious attempt to earn a degree, but just to improve myself. 
I came across and pieced together bit by bit a humanistic set of values that turned out to be far more self-consistent and pertinent to the modern world than a petrified decalogue of biblical taboo. It was becoming clear to me that the universe behaved pretty much as might be expected if God didn't exist, or at least didn't care. It gradually dawned upon me that in the grand scheme of things, there was, in fact, no grand scheme. God performed no observable function and had no valid purpose. The question entered my mind, what is a God without purpose and for which there is no evidence? Non-existent came the obvious answer. And this gentleman goes on to say, the blinders of dogma and the yoke of dread were finally off. For me, the universe now shone in a wholesome new light, the comforting glow of reality no longer distorted either by the almost cartoonish artificial glory of myth and miracle or by the dreadful glare of hellfire. I was free. There are lots of stories like this one. Powerful accounts that depict non-belief as the result of a quest for truth and the courage to face life as it really is. And if you ever get around to reading several of these stories and comparing them, you'll notice some patterns. You'll notice that, generally speaking, people are losing their faith for the following reasons. A lack of empirical evidence for the claims of religion. The problem of evil in a world supposedly overseen by a good and all-powerful God. And the possibility of living a good, moral, and just life apart from the confines of God and religion. In other words, people are becoming convinced more and more in our Western world that Christianity just doesn't make sense of the modern world. And yet behind these stories lies a deeper narrative. Namely, that religious people are living by blind faith, while secular people and non-believers in God are grounding their position in evidence and reason. The story goes something like this. Once upon a time, but let's be honest, we're talking about medieval Christendom here. Once upon a time, People believed in the supernatural, in spirits and fairies and gods and demons. But then, in a scientific movement of the 15th and 16th centuries called the Enlightenment, we grew up, we came of age, and we became rational. And once we realized that we'd been duped, that there really wasn't a Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, that religion was a sham, and that there were natural scientific explanations for everything that happened in the world, what we did was we left behind all those fairy tales, those unprovable assumptions about reality, and we committed ourselves once and for all, finally, to living by pure reason and science. 
Now, this is really a a clever way to tell the story. For one thing, you have a really tense plot, which is nothing less than the flourishing of the human race. That's a big deal. You also have a cast of characters with heroes on one end, think Galileo and other brave and daring scientists like him, and villains on the other hand, think medieval Christendom, with all their smells and bells and pointy hats and things good Anglicans would never do. (laughs) It's this classic story. It's this classic underdog story. The kind that we love. And it's captivating. In fact, it's the story that's driving Western culture deeper and deeper and deeper into secularism. And it's the story that's championing the reality That science alone decides what's real. And that we shouldn't believe anything unless we can prove it with empirical data. The only problem is that each of these ideas is actually a new belief. A value-laden commitment that can't be empirically proven. Can you really prove empirically that science alone decides what's real? You say we shouldn't believe something unless we can prove it empirically. But what's the empirical proof for that claim? How do we know that's true? Or what about this? A website called A Good Life Without God argues that Without the influence of religion, we'll finally be able to achieve, quote, a tolerant, open society where there's mutual respect and equality for all people, no one view of the universe, but lots of views, and all people will be able to realize their potential, end quote. But where do these values come from? Can you prove empirically that we should respect people and treat them equally, especially those who are most vulnerable. See the problem? The truth is, Western secularity is not an absence of faith at all. It's actually a new set of beliefs about the universe. It's a religion. So maybe Paul's words in Acts chapter 17 do hit closer to home than we thought. Men of Athens, he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Okay, so what if we just admit that we're all to some degree religious? Then what? It's not like this automatically shows that Christianity is true or that God exists, um, much less the Christian God for that matter. So why exactly is it so important to see secularism as a religion, as a full-fledged, full-throttle belief system? Well, keep your finger in the book of Acts and please turn with me for a moment to our Old Testament reading, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. 
right near the middle of the Bible, past Psalms, past Proverbs, and you're there. And look again with me at the last verse of our reading. Verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, for as long as I can remember, I've always been struck by that phrase. He has put eternity into man's heart. Doesn't it just sound important? Sounds like we should stop. What does it mean? It means that try as we may to escape the confines of belief, whether that's our faulty religious upbringing or the messy reality of evil or just the just plain toughness of being a person of faith in the modern age, religion will not and cannot disappear. God has planted deep down in each one of us what philosophers are now calling the desire for eternity. It's this abiding concern that we have for the ever after. This chronic longing to reach beyond the natural world, beyond the here and now, beyond the Monday through Friday, nine to five existence, questing for meaning and significance and purpose. And this longing can show up at the strangest times, can't it? For me, it shows up when a particular experience doesn't quite meet my expectations. When true and lasting satisfaction seems utterly elusive. It's funny, my four-year-old daughter, Audrey, has just recently become interested in scratching backs. (laughs) Obviously, this is a skill that Mary Elizabeth and I are encouraging. Sometimes your children make you very proud. So I'll be lying in bed in the morning hours, and I'll suddenly feel these little fingers trying desperately to scratch an itch that never quite goes away, if you know what I mean. And it's such an almost agonizing experience, because for all the effort that Audrey puts into it, she just doesn't have the ability to give me any kind of relief. And truth be told, she only makes my back itch more. (laughs) Now, maybe you don't have a four-year-old daughter who likes to scratch your back. And you can't have mine. (laughs) But I would imagine that you can relate to this feeling, this experience of longing. You photograph a sunset. But all you get is the memory of the moment, not the moment itself. You climb the mountain. And even though the view from the summit is magnificent, it still leaves you wanting more. Even if you could build a house there and gaze all day at the scene, the itch wouldn't go away. It's almost like the beauty seems to be in the itching itself. The sense of longing, the kind of 
pleasure which is exquisite and yet leaves us unsatisfied. It's the delicious filet mignon that's so good, and yet there seems to be some unidentifiable missing ingredient. It's the vacation that's just what the doctor ordered. And yet there remains deep within you this restlessness, no matter how long you get to stay. It's sex. It's that craving for romantic love, or even even that close friendship, for that matter, where there's such intimacy, but it's just never quite intimate enough, never close enough. What are these longings telling us? Are they really nothing more uh, than our animal nature, with our desire for nature, uh, with our desire for nature and food? And sex, those are the examples I've just given. It would make sense. But if that's the case, then how can we account for art? For a beauty that has nothing to do with our appetites. How can we explain the way a symphony, perfectly tuned, can move us to tears? Or how a painting by Chagall can speak to something so deep down inside of us that we wonder if he's like reading our mail or something. (laughs) See, this is where secularism taps out. It can't even put up a decent fight, self-admittedly, because if there is no God and there is no afterlife and there is no meaning and significance in life apart from what you make for yourself, then at the end of the day, All you're left with are these surprise attacks of intense desire and longing that simply can't be explained. It's an itch that can't be scratched. And all you can do is cope with it. You can drown it with alcohol. Or distract it with Netflix. You can deceive it by faking true fulfillment with Facebook and Instagram. You can suppress it by working really long hours and by taking lots of thrilling vacations and by throwing yourself ravenously into a particular hobby. But at the end of the day, when the joy fades, when you lie down in bed at night after your phone has died, don't you hate that? (laughs) And your show is over, and your drink is gone, you'll feel it. And I know you'll feel it because I've felt it myself. It's that subtle angst, that strange sadness, that gnawing sense of loneliness, that longing to be finally genuinely happy and fulfilled and loved and known and free. Almost like you want to be held and embraced by somebody who knows and understands you better than anybody else. But there's nothing. No one comes. No one responds to your longings and desires because in secularism, that person doesn't exist. And those longings and desires 
can only be unexplained and coped with and ignored. But the Christian tradition says that these longings that we all have, these longings make perfect sense. It says that this deep sense of yearning for something wonderful, something transcendent, is ultimately grounded in the fact that we are created for deep and lasting friendship with God and that we will not be fulfilled until we enter into that kind of relationship with Him. St. Augustine put it this way, O Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There was a 60 Minutes interview in 2009 with Tom Brady. Is it okay that I share this, Cooks? He's a Patriots guy. (laughs) Quarterback for the New England Patriots. At the time, he was one of the most successful athletes in the world. Maybe he still is. He was having one of the greatest seasons in all of football. He'd won three Super Bowls. He just signed a $60 million contract with the Patriots. And he had the sex appeal off the field of a Hollywood celebrity. And yet here's what he said in that interview. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? It's got to be more than this. And when the interviewer asked him what he thought that was, he simply said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. This is the unasked question that Paul is answering in Athens. And it's just as relevant for us today. He says in verse 23, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, jump to verse 27, that God is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Searching for God is like walking in the dark. We can't fully see the road ahead of us. We're stumbling. We're not even all that sure where to put our feet. But in Jesus, Paul says, God has turned on the light switch. He has revealed himself, not by proofs, not with empirical data and scientific verification, but in a perfect love and power that speaks to us from beyond the grave, the resurrection of Jesus. This is the unknown God. And the thing is, he does not want to remain unknown. Because every other religion in the world has a person, has a human coming with this message, here's how you can find God. Christianity is the only religion where God himself comes and says, I've come to find you. He seeks you out. That's what these longings are all about. And this is what God has done for you. 
He has revealed himself to you in Jesus. And all of this love he has for you has culminated on the cross when he died for you. He loves you. He wants to be known by you. He wants to live with you. He wants to live in you. And he wants to redeem the whole world. He wants to redeem you. Are you a doubter? Haunted by belief? Tempted with faith? Do you long for God to be real despite the life that you've constructed for yourself? Ask him to reveal himself to you. Call out to him. Just like you would call into a house that you think is empty, but just in case. See if he's really there. If he doesn't answer you, fine. We're crazy. Go ahead. Live your life. But if he does answer you, if he surprises you, and if what you intended as a reluctant experiment suddenly becomes the realest thing you've ever experienced, well, then that changes everything. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.